Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. This episode covers the archive readings from my own work, from what fans and the media were saying about the show at the time. There's a little speculation shape of the show section near the end where we get into some of the stuff that strayed into what people thought might happen, even though, of course, they didn't know at the time, so no spoilers. At the very end of the episode, we jump into the first minute of uh, the next episode of season one, episode seven. And given that this episode ends on a cliffhanger, uh, you may want to stop there if you haven't watched the episode yet. Uh, so keep that in mind. There'll be fair warning beforehand. Elsewhere in the media, now less than two weeks away from the finale, Twin Peaks was perfectly situated to sustain its pop culture phenomenon through the entire first season. We'll have much more to cover next week, but for now, a few short snippets will suffice. The Economist ran an article called Twin Tensions on May 12, 1990, in which it wrote, So far, the drop in the show's ratings, its third weekly showing gave it 18% of the available television audience, down 9% in two weeks, has been offset by applause from the all caps, rate people. In Britain, the BBC has bought the series. But viewer figures will tell in the end. Mr. Iger will try to convince his company that, though his audience is not very big, it is young and affluent. People magazine published Cryptic Dreams, a dead prom queen dwarf backtalk. Here, at last, is a guide to what Twin Peaks is all about. By Susan Shindahat, John Griffiths, Christina Johnson, and Craig Tomashoff. This was published on May 14, 1990. And here I just saw fit to uh, include a certain David Lynch quote in which he says, I still don't see what the great difference is. To me, it's a regular TV show. On the Usenet message boards of May 1990, here were a couple fan commentaries after this episode aired. On May 11th, 1990, Jeff Williamson wrote, On behalf of the Northwestern ISRC Twin Peaks View Crew, that's Robert, Sabine, and me, I would like to convey a collective scream of anguish. David Lynch is a sadist. Diane, it's 11 o'clock p.m. on Wednesday. I've just returned to my room at the Great Northern Inn to find a nude Audrey Horn lying beneath the sheets in my bed. Further updates as events warrant. Another commentator offered a half-tongue-in-cheek theory that I'll save for the early speculation section of the podcast near the end. Given the log lady scene in particular, as well as Bobby's tearful breakdown and Leland's dancing tearful breakdown, this remains a popular episode among fans. Gladder is often recognized as one of the best directors of the series. My own opinion has shifted dramatically over the years. Initially, I was not terribly impressed, despite being drawn to the Laura Palmer mystery that this episode captures so poetically. For some reason, the surrounding material stuck out in my mind, and I think I thought this, along with some other season one episodes, was a little too arch, maybe even smug in its stylization, preferring Lynch's version of cool surrealism. But over time, this has become one of my favorite episodes, one, along with the previous and next entry, that best captures the show's non-Lynchian strengths, its ability to convert his ideas into the material of an absorbing, ongoing TV serial that balances drama with dreaminess. Here are my readings from previous pieces, all without spoilers. From the 2008 episode guide, this is probably one of the reviews I most disagree with now. It argues that Frost isn't interested in the supernatural, Gladder's direction is mostly straightforward, and Cooper is less morose than he's been before, which is fair enough, but he's also a lot grumpier at times. So, you know, sometimes you have a certain impression of something that you revisit and you're like, hmm, now I feel pretty opposite. But here's what I wrote at the time, some of which I probably still agree with. Most of Frost's story leaves the nightmarish dread and creepy sense of unreality out of the mix, choosing to focus on the town's intrigue, ranging from the politico business, much screen time is given to Ben Horn and his machinations, to the romantic, 
Norma also features extensively, forced to deal with both Big Ed and recently paroled Hank, who finally unleashes his hinted-at violent side by episode's end. Laura Palmer and her murder hardly factor here, which is why the sequence in the woods registers so strongly. It's the exception that proves the rule. Also, there seems to be a fundamental difference in Lynch's and Frost's conceptions of Twin Peaks. Lynch seeks surrealism in the town's surface normality, while Frost revels in the quirk of the community's eccentricities. And I still suspect that Cooper is more Frost creation, though he does bear certain similarities to Kyle MacLachlan's character in Blue Velvet. Together, the co-creator's contributions strengthen each other. Separated from Lynch's connection to the subconscious, Frost's work is interesting, but there are better Twin Peaks episodes than this one. So while I do disagree with a lot of that, I actually really like the way I put the Lynch-Frost conception, surrealism in the town's surface normality versus the quirk of the community's eccentricities. I think that kind of nicely describes the uh, yin and yang that they have. For the uh, Tumblr, um, the the ranking that I did, the Out of Order series where I rewatched all the episodes from my least favorite to my favorite, in 2015 I wrote, Episode 5 breaks into two halves. The first is very well executed, meticulously picking up story threads to advance them a little bit, coloring in some new details of the characters or their situations, offering the fun flourishes we expect from Twin Peaks at its best. Jerry wielding a thick leg of lamb, Bobby's false bravado melting the moment someone knocks at the door, and of course, an unhealthy heap of tantalizing donuts passed around a crime scene to be consumed by detectives wearing plastic gloves. This is good stuff, but I think the heart of the episode is in its second half. Twin Peaks' first season is tightly knit around two possibly interlocked dramas, the unsolved murder of Laura Palmer, Golden Girl enmeshed in Twin Peaks' shadowy underworld, and the plot to burn down the Packard Sawmill, a more sophisticated intrigue involving everyone from international entrepreneurs to the local shit-kickers who dealt drugs to Laura. I'll save another part of this review for the shape of the story section, since it relates to how close this episode is to the top of my list. In 2016, for a Reddit rewatch that I later converted into my first-time viewer companion, I wrote, and I'm going to read the whole piece for this because it's pretty short and it really sums up well how I feel about it now, I think, an aspect that I haven't talked about so much, how it is, uh, how Cooper and Laura are at the center. So many characters get good scenes and solid story development, but I think it's most useful to view this episode through the two characters who are arguably most important to the show, Cooper and Laura. Coop gets to do some of his sharpest, most intuitive detective work since the pilot. For the most part, season one has shown him soaking up information, using traditional and Tibetan methods or dreams, and then following up on a few clues. But now he's actively noticing things left and right, the magazine in the ceiling or the drapes on the wall photo and in the magazine. At the same time, he is shown to be human and grounded, grouchy after being kept up all night and confused by the log lady's eccentricities in a way that locals are not. Laura, meanwhile, gets more fleshed out. She's not only the mystery object motivating all the action, but clearly somebody with a tumultuous inner life, worth exploring in its own right. This was suggested by Jacoby last week, but feels more raw in Bobby's teary confession, the log lady's, or rather her log's, recollection of Laura's last night, and the eerie atmosphere of Jacques' cabin. I love that scene starting on the raven's eye and ending with the chipped poker chip, between the music of Julie Cruz and the unsettling whistle of the cabin walls. Watching the series again, those of us who've seen everything can't usually reaccess our first what's going on here buzz, something first-time viewers should really savor. It's the quintessence of Lynch, even though he was not directly involved with this episode. This scene, however, comes close to capturing that feeling, even after many viewings. Horror viewed at a safe distance, which makes you want to find out more even if you sense you're playing with fire. The location feels haunted, charged by a psychic presence left over from some unseen trauma. And now we're going to talk about the shape of the story. 
So if you like to just focus on the episode at hand, you know, tune out here, but there won't be any plot spoilers. When I ranked this episode in 2015 for Tumblr, uh, I ranked it number nine. Since we're inside the top 10, I focused on how this episode relates to the higher ranked ones. And when I talk about uh, pretty soon on this rewatch in what I'm about to read, I'm referring not to what's chronologically next in the series, but actually to the higher ranked episodes. Here's what I wrote. I think the show is at its strongest when it harnesses two divergent approaches to one another. The televisual concept of a world too teeming to contain within two hours, and the cinematic hook of a journey with a destination. Maybe Mark Frost, who wrote this episode, said it best. Regarding the forthcoming return of the series, he remarked, I think what we've learned is you gotta have a very strong central path through the woods. It's fine to have tributaries and streams and little byways, but ultimately... That path through the woods has to be very dark, clear, and dangerous. That's the path we're going to keep to. There will be, I hope, a healthy percentage of delightful sidelines or paths off to the side, but there aren't any shortcuts. You've got to follow that main path. And then I continue. We are almost past the tributaries, streams, and byways, and we are definitely past the mistaken shortcuts, detours, and dead ends taken by the original series before Twin Peaks learned its lessons. Pretty soon on this rewatch, we will be out of the woods altogether, up on the mountain peak where you can look out all over the whole landscape and marvel at the fact that all those isolated little thickets where it seemed like there was nothing beyond the thick canopy of trees overhead add up to something momentous after all. Also in 2015, for my Doug Puck comments where I watched random episodes, I wrote, The cabin itself feels like a kind of threshold for Cooper, as close as he can get at present to Laura's world. Although Frost obviously intended it to have a haunting echo of the Red Room, hence the red drapes which Lynch pointedly removed in the film, for those of us who've seen Firewalk with me, it has a different haunting resonance. All the stuff that is spookily suggestive on screen, we've witnessed in more raw detail. I love scenes like this that feel like a missing link between the series and the film. For the next time um, preview, we see the one-eyed Jack sign... And then Cooper and Ed are standing together and Cooper says, here comes something as Blackie walks up. We see somebody who looks like Laura standing at a phone, a public phone calling uh, Dr. Jacoby. And we see Leo aiming a gun, a sniper's rifle at Bobby and Shelly. And then there's a gunshot and we see blood sprinkled all over donuts. It's funny, these previews love to show us characters interacting for the first time, like characters we haven't seen together. So in this case, Blackie with Coop and Ed. For the Log Lady introduction that Lynch recorded in 93 for the Bravo re-airing of the show, she talks about playing her part on life stage, that the answer cannot come till all are ready to hear, and then she speaks of anger at the fire and asks, could it be a clue? And memorably, she closes by saying, the fire I speak of is not a kind fire. So a few things to say about this. First of all, it's nice how this Log Lady intro moves from seemingly being one of the most comprehensible to being one of the more obscure. Starts off by basically referring to the fact that she's a big part of this episode, but it ends with this cryptic description of fire. And she talks about fire a lot. She says in the intro to the pilot, I think it was beyond the fire, though few know that meaning. I get the sense sometimes that for Lynch, fire is like something maybe from the Maharishi, because the Maharishi... Uh, the leader of transcendental meditation who you know Lynch followed and was devoted to that uh, he would use these sort of metaphorical uh, sayings that he's incorporated sometimes in like Inland Empire I think in parts of the return 
And uh, I get the sense almost like there is something, there is some, um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint, but we can get into that more. We'll have plenty of time to get into that more, certainly with Firewalk with me, of what the fire might mean. And now, as promised, for a piece of speculation from 1990 from fans who had no idea what was coming, so there's no spoilers here, it's just a theory, but there are spoilers for the film The Wicker Man. Rich Rosen wrote on May 13th, 1990 on the Usenet board, Talk like this has me thinking that maybe what we're really watching is a retelling of The Wicker Man. Audrey's romp in the hay with Cooper, if consummated, would tend to discredit this notion, but maybe she's trying to save him. Spoiler for The Wicker Man, not for TP. Watch me get slaughtered. The Wicker Man is about a policeman sent to an island community off the coast of Britain to solve a murder there, but the population, led by Christopher Lee, is a pagan community who needs to sacrifice a virgin. He thinks that this is the fate that has befallen the murdered girl, but in reality, it is the fate in store for him, he being a virgin. Someone please correct and fill in proper details. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie. There, now I've embarrassed myself. So here is the first minute of the next episode. And again, keep in mind, unlike some of them, which is which are more ambient or just kind of getting the ball rolling, this one has a, some significant plot action in terms of where we left off in this episode so i would say uh check out here if you haven't watched the next episode yet audrey you're a high school girl i'm an agent of the fbi so do you want me to leave or what? What I want and, and what I need are two different things, Audrey. When a man joins the Bureau, he takes an oath to uphold certain values. Values that he's sworn to live by. This is wrong, Audrey. We both know it. But don't you like me? I like you very much. You're beautiful, intelligent, desirable. You're everything that a man wants in his life. But what you need right now, more than anything else, is a friend. For the second episode in a row, we open on a moon, although inexplicably it's gone from full to close to half. There is no obstruction or fancy camera work this time, just a slice of pockmarked bluish-gray isolated in a still, solemn field of black. The color continues when we cut to a striking shot of the Great Northern and the waterfall. It must be late at night because almost all the lights in the hotel are off and only a bright but focused blue light shines on the top of the waterfall. The entire surrounding area is buried in shadow, almost all of it in pure blackness. And then a medium close-up of Cooper, turned about 90 degrees away from the camera and facing the bedside wall in his room from a seated position. The yellow of the FBI emblazoned on his back and arm jump out at us from his blue jacket. Shaking his head, he speaks to Audrey without looking at her, or us. We cut to a medium shot, close to a reverse angle, although the framing is different. We can see the blurred shape of Cooper's FBI jacket and a bit of his head in the foreground, creating a slightly disorienting feeling. Audrey is sitting up in bed, her arms holding a sheet in place across her chest. A tear is running down her cheek as she shrugs and asks a question. The camera pans into a close-up of Cooper as he turns his head to shake it, looking in the other direction again and attempts to answer her. We return with a cut 
to the medium of Audrey as she listens, and then back to the medium version of that first angle on Cooper, who turns his head to look at Audrey as he speaks the word values. There is a cut to a close-up of Audrey, bare-shouldered, the sheet is below the frame, listening, moved, to Cooper's speech and sniffling a little. Quickly cutting back to Cooper's medium, we see him shake his head and turn away again as he says, this is wrong, we both know it. Cut to Audrey's close-up as she casts a momentary gaze at the ceiling in wistful longing and then looks down at the bed. Cut to that initial medium close-up of Coop as Audrey asks him a question, and he gently swivels his neck to answer her sympathetically. There is one more cut to her reaction close-up as he compliments her, and then back to the medium close-up as he tells her she needs a friend. End our minute. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow we will continue with this Season 1, Episode 7 coverage. This is one of my favorite episodes of Season 1. I've always really enjoyed talking about it, so this was a lot of fun to visit in this context. And uh, we will see you there tomorrow. Tomorrow.